You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. After the great Chicago fire destroyed one-third of the city of Chicago in 1871, the people began to rebuild, naturally, and they rebuilt and rebuilt, and actually, over the next 30 years, from 1870 to 1900, Chicago was the fastest-growing city in the world. It went from a population of 299,000, just under 300,000, to 1.7 million in 30 years. And we thought Denver was exploding in growth today. Uh, Chicago had increased about 550% at that time. And downtown Chicago was rapidly becoming a business hub, a Midwest business hub. Economic centers, businesses were gathering there. But the problem was real estate. And if you're familiar with your geography, you know that just to the east of Chicago is a large tract of land that you cannot build on because it is Lake Michigan. And so the problem was that there were too many people moving in and there was not enough space to accommodate them. So architects and builders began to think to themselves, how can we accommodate more people? And the answer was up. If we could build buildings taller, we can get more businesses, more people to buy, to, to buy apartments or pay rent, and we can fit more people into this urban area. Well, the problem was that the soil of Chicago is very marshy. Makes sense, being so close to a large lake like that. It was very sandy, very wet, and the bedrock was, hun- was a couple hundred feet down from what I remember reading. And so the bedrock was too far down to build on. So architects and builders were debating what to do, how they could fix this, wh- what they needed to accomplish. And a man by the name of John Root was the architect who solved the problem. He designed a floating raft foundation, which used interlocking steel beams filled with concrete to create a raft. And from what I understand, I'm not an engineer, so maybe some of you can correct me later. The amount of dirt that you would have to scoop out of the hole was the amount of weight that you would have to put back into it to support the building. And so there was this raft-like thing made of steel and concrete that supported the overall weight of the building. And what they found was when they used this type of foundation, they could build large, tall buildings which scraped the sky. And that's where we get the term skyscraper. And that idea of building taller and taller buildings came all because the right foundation was used. What is the foundation of your life? We can use that as an analogy, as a metaphor. What have you built your life upon? What do you base your decisions and values on? What do you trust and rely on to guide you through life? Each of us builds our lives on a foundation. So the question is not, do you have a foundation? The question is, what foundation have you chosen? What foundation will you choose? And the Bible is very clear, and the Christian faith has told us for centuries that the Bible, the scriptures, ought to be the foundation of our life. But that's not a widely accepted truth in our world. There are many other foundations that people could build on. Other religions claim that their holy book is true. That you should build your life on the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Bhagavad Gita, whatever it is. Many people in our culture in America make things like the American dream 
their foundation. That if I can just earn a little bit of money, get to that upper class echelon, get affluent in the sense of not having to worry about my, my finances, that, that will make me successful. That's the foundation I want to build on. Perhaps others believe that, that pleasure and recreation or power Success. These are the foundations. These are the things that are going to guide my life and give me meaning and purpose. And with all these choices available, I think it's a legitimate question to ask, why should I make the Bible the foundation of my life? Why should we make the, the Bible the foundation of our life? And, and I recognize that there's probably many of us here that, that have never even thought about this question, that well, of course the Bible is the foundation for my life. That's what I was taught. That's what I believe. It's true. I accept it. But there are also many people who are searching. Many people who are doubting. Many people who perhaps are skeptical of the truth or the faith. And they need confirmation. You need assurance. You need some answers to your doubts. You need answers that show you and assure you that the Bible is a solid foundation to build on. And so no matter if, if you are questioning or doubting or a skeptic or if you've accepted this, and this is truly what you're building on, this message is for you because there are applications from this text to each of those situations. This morning, we're going to answer this question from Galatians 1, 16 to 24. And in this section, Paul is defending his message and his apostleship. Some false brothers have come to Galatia. He calls them false brothers in the early part of chapter 1. And they're teaching that Paul's gospel is incomplete, that he's a, a bad disciple of those that were in Jerusalem, that he's twisted the message. And that really, to gain salvation, you have to do a few other things than what Paul told you. You have to obey the law. You have to submit to circumcision. You have to obey the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And the, the believers in Galatia were really wondering. They were, they were spooked. They were unsettled. And so Paul writes with urgency in Galatians 1 and 2. And he is defending his message. He's defending his apostleship. And he shows that from chapter 1, verse 11, all the way to chapter 2, verse 14. He makes an assertion in verses 11 and 12. You can trust my word because what I have received has come directly from Jesus. That's in verses 11 and 12. That's the assertion. The defense of that assertion, the evidence that he gives to support that claim, come from verses 13 all the way down to chapter 2, verse 14. And his reasoning goes something like this. Yes, my message and apostleship came from Jesus, and it started that way because I was converted through an appearance of Jesus Christ. I wasn't saved by hearing the gospel from somebody else. Jesus appeared to me. And then he says, as we'll see today in chapter, at the end of chapter 1, no one else taught me the gospel. No one else gave me my authority. I didn't even go to Jerusalem to talk with the apostles who were before me. I went and for three years I was out in the wilderness. I was preaching in Arabia. I was doing ministry. And when I finally came to Jerusalem, I only spent two weeks there, 15 days to be precise. That's not enough time for me to, to become a disciple of these people. I went for 15 days and then I departed. And I spent 14 years after my conversion doing ministry apart from these apostles. But when I finally came back to talk to them in chapter 2, we confirmed that the message they were preaching and the message I'm preaching is one and the same. In fact, they went so far as to recognize the grace that was given to me, and they encouraged me. They gave me the right hand of fellowship. And they said, go remember the poor as you preach the gospel. And that's the very thing I wanted to do, Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 2. 
And if that isn't enough, his authority that, that Paul had, Paul's authority, was on par with Peter's because there's this confrontation in chapter 2 where Paul has to, to rebuke Peter publicly because the gospel was being compromised. And so what is Paul's point in all of this? Is he simply just recounting his journeys like, like a, a modern-day vlogger who is going all over the world making a little bit of money because they go to cool places? No, he's defending his assertion that the gospel he received and the apostleship that he has is from God, which means that the Galatians can trust him. They can trust what he's saying. Paul's apostleship is legitimate. His authority divinely sourced. His message, therefore, is true and can be trusted. The Galatians should reject these other false teachers and believe Paul and listen to what he's saying about what the gospel teaches. This addresses our key question today. If Paul's message is true, then it's a solid foundation to build our lives on. That's one of the major implications that he's teaching the Galatians. If his message is true, they can build their lives on it. They can be assured that what they've received is valid and reliable to them. They're not going to be building a large skyscraper-like building on a shaky foundation. It is solid and it's settled and it will hold them. And in verses 16 through 24 of chapter 1, Paul makes three points that explain and defend the nature of his message. He shows us what this message, this this word that he's received, this gospel that that he's received, he shows us what this is. And these same arguments actually apply to the Bible as a whole. They're mentioned in other passages of Scripture, and they also apply by extension. And so what I'd like to do today is, is focus on these three answers These three points that Paul makes because they answer this question. Why should I make the Bible the foundation for my life? Well, Paul tells us. The first answer is this. Why should I make the the Bible the foundation of my life? First, because the source of the Bible is from God. It's from God. Verses 12 and 16 deal with the source of Paul's message. And there's a word that's repeated two different times here. It's the word revelation or reveal. In verse 12, Paul states that he, was, that he was not taught the gospel, nor did someone pass it on to him, but he received it through a revelation of Jesus. In verse 16, Paul explains that his conversion took place when God graciously revealed Jesus to him. What does it mean to reveal something? To reveal is to uncover, to bring something to light that was hidden or not formerly known. And what Paul is arguing here is that his message, his gospel, and the Bible is a revelation from God. It is God's revelation to man. The Bible teaches us that without this revelation, this word from God, truth is unknowable. Let's think about that for a couple moments. Romans 3.11 quotes Psalm 14.2 when it says, There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. No one would be able to find God if God had not revealed himself to us. Have you ever thought about that before? How can someone find God in our world? Well, if God didn't disclose himself to us, it would be like trying to play hide and seek with an astronaut on the moon. There's no way that we could ever sense or feel or see God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We can't conceive God or imagine him. We needed God to disclose himself to us. And he's done this to us, actually. 
And he's done this in several different ways. And this is what's called general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is simply God disclosing himself through general or a variety of means, like through creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. We can know certain things about God through history, through providence, through creation, through conscience. We can know that there is a creator out there, that he's set things in motion, that he's orderly, that he's powerful, clearly. But the knowledge that we have through general revelation is very limited. That's why special revelation is so important. And special revelation is God's specific direct communication to us. And in ancient times, this included dreams or visions like Paul had of Jesus Christ, a direct vision of Jesus. But Hebrews 1.1 says that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, the living word. And the living word and the message about Jesus has been recorded in the written word, which is the word of God, the scriptures. The Bible is God's special revelation to us. How could we know that God loves us if the Bible didn't tell us? How could we know that the Son of God became a man? How could we know that Jesus bore our sins on the tree and rose again for our justification? How could we know that faith is the means of salvation as we trust in his grace? How could we know these things if we didn't have the disclosure of God, the word of God to tell us this? The answer is we couldn't, and that's the point. We couldn't know these things without God graciously revealing himself in the scriptures. Well, how did God reveal himself? How did we get this Bible that's ours today? The revelation from God is what we call inspiration. That's the the doctrinal term. The Bible is given to us by inspiration. Every word breathed out by God for our benefit. And this comes from 2 Timothy 3, 16, where the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the word inspiration is a compound word. It's a really interesting word because it's only used there in the Bible in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And it's not found in ancient literature. It's a unique word to Christians. And it's It combines the word God with the word exhale. God exhaled. He breathed out the scriptures. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Saul is breathing out threats on the Christians. It's the same root word, breathing. Saul was muttering under his breath and and talking about the things that he was going to do to Christians. God exhaled the scriptures. He gave them to us. He breathed them out. And every word that, the, that God gave to us is inspired. That's what we call verbal inspiration. God inspired the original writings. And since we have accurate copies of the originals, we can trust what we have today. We can be confident that what we hold in our hands is the word of God. Now, did God give us an encyclopedia? Did God give us everything there is to know in the universe? No, because if he did, none of us could, could carry that book to church. It would be far too big for us. But what God has done is, as 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says, I have given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Anything we need to know about the next life, about living for eternity, anything we need to know about how to live our Christian lives today, everything we need is here. Now, are there things that I wish he would have talked about? Yeah. But the doctrine of sufficiency means that what we have is enough for us. 
that we can trust what the word of God says because it is everything we need. It's given to us by a loving, gracious God as his particular revelation to us. So the first reason we should trust that the Bible is the foundation of our life is because of its source. It's from God. The second reason is found in verses 16 through 21 because the Bible is pure. Paul is making the point in this passage that that his gospel, his authority was not compromised or altered by man. The message he received was was not messed with. And that's the same argument the scriptures give us about itself. The purity of the Bible, it has not been altered by man. Look at verse 16 with me. Paul says that after he was saved, after God revealed his son to him, in him, he did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did he go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before him. But he went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He didn't consult with other people. He immediately went away and preached because what he received from God, from Jesus, was sufficient. In verses 18 through 19, he gives us his next movement. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. Peter was really the lead apostle in Jerusalem. And the book of Acts divides up really into two sections where it follows Peter and his gospel preaching in chapters 1 through 12. And then it follows Paul and his gospel preaching to the Gentiles to the ends of the earth in 13 through 28. Peter and Paul are the two key leaders in the church. Paul comes and visits Peter in verse 18, remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So three years after his conversion, he met with Peter. He visited James, maybe had a short conversation with him. And this visit is recorded in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 through 30. What was Paul doing there? He was trying to join the disciples. He was trying to get to know the apostles. Acts 9 says that they were scared of him. Because the last time they saw him or heard of him, he was trying to kill them. That would, that would frighten me, too, if someone was trying to kill me and then they said, hey, by the way, I want to come talk to you. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> no way. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, brings Paul to Peter. And they talk. And they're there for 15 days. In verse 20, Paul says, now concerning the things that I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. To put it in our English today, he says, guys, I'm not lying to you. This is really what happened. I didn't go and enroll in Jerusalem Seminary. The authority that I have, the message I have, has not been altered by anyone, not even the other apostles. And after this visit, he went and was sent back home to his home city of Tarsus in Asia Minor. In verse 21, we read that after this visit to Jerusalem, he went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and that is, Tarsus was one of the leading cities of of this region. So what is Paul's argument here? His argument is that no one changed his message. His message is pure, untainted. And the Bible tells us that it is also untainted. It is pure. No man has altered it. And there are two really key ways that that it, it is pure. First, In the initial giving of the word. It has not been altered by man. In the initial giving. This is the point on the screen. There's a cross-reference of 2 Peter 1, 20-21. That's the point that, that verse is making. Peter says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, Peter is clarifying for us a couple of things. First, he says that no word of Scripture 
came through someone's private interpretation. In other words, the Bible didn't come to us by one guy writing down what he wanted to say. Paul didn't sit in his prison cell and say, now I wonder what the Philippians need today. Luke didn't sit down and say, hey, I I think I should write about Paul's journeys. That would pass the time. No, each of these men wrote as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. That idea is like the wind in the sails of a boat, where the Spirit is the driving, animating force. He is a person, but he is coming upon those that are writing Scripture. And yet, he is using the unique gifts and talents and style and background to record the exact and very thoughts of God, the very words of God. In that way, we see why the Bible has different books and different styles and different truths because the Spirit is using the the gifts and the personalities of each man to record what he wanted to say. And, And really, this goes back to the unity of the Bible. The unity of the Bible is incredible. Have you realized this? That the Bible was written over the course of 1,500 years, 1,500 years, by 40 or so authors from three different continents with a half a dozen cultural backgrounds in play, at least. And yet, there is not a single discrepancy between the writers. There's not a disagreement about doctrine. There's not a disagreement about the history. You say, well, that, that's, that's, I guess, impressive. If you go read anything that our scholarship in America puts out about the American Revolution, can they agree about anything? They can't even agree about World War II, and that happened last century. And yet, here is an ancient document written over 1,500 years without a single mistake in it, with 40 different people speaking different languages from different cultures, all adding to it, and it agrees completely. How in the world does that happen? The answer is the Spirit is the one who is giving it. The Bible has not been altered by man in the initial giving of the word. It is without error. It's, it's inerrant. It's infallible. It's incapable of being wrong because it's come from God. But there are some skeptics out there, some, some unbelievers, who say that the Bible has been altered since then. Sure, I'll grant you that the Bible came to us from God. We'll, we'll concede that point. But you can't possibly think that in the last 2,000 years, the Bible has been purely transmitted. That's exactly what I think. The Bible has not been altered by man in the transmission of the word. Over the centuries, the word of God has been faithfully transmitted from generation to generation. And it did that for about 1,400 years before the printing press. It has been accurately preserved by people copying the scriptures. Now, is it true that we don't have the originals? Do we have the the literal piece of papyrus that Paul wrote on? No, we don't have that, which frankly, is probably a good thing because we would try to worship it and venerate it. But we have a reliable witness about the word of God. And critics argue that we don't have an accurate translation. We don't have an accurate Bible today. We can't be sure. And sometimes it's very unsettling because some of the things they say make a lot of sense. So I want to address a couple of these things. Because the Bible has not been altered by man in the transmission of the word. We can be very confident in it. Here's the first objection. We can't really know with certainty what the originals said. We just don't have enough copies of the Bible to give us evidence for the originals. We just, you know, we're just making guesses about what it really said. 
actually, we know with a high, high, high degree of certainty what the original said because of the amount of manuscripts. I've got a chart up here that you're probably trying to digest. This describes the copies of different documents we have about the, the New Testament. I'm just taking the New Testament here. I'm not, not even talking about the Old Testament. About the New Testament. So we have Greek manuscripts, and the New Testament was written in Greek. We have over 5,800 manuscripts that have copies of the Greek writing. Then we have Latin, and Latin was one of the earliest translations of the Scriptures. The Latin Vulgate was used by the, the, the church at large for a 1,000 years. We have 10,000 or so manuscripts in Latin that record the Word of God. We also have ancient versions in Syriac, Coptic, Armenian, Gothic, Ethiopic. These are different languages that are very early translations of the Word of God. And so we can compare what we have in the Greek to what we have, say, in the Armenian. We have quotes, if that wasn't enough for you. We have quotes from early Christian writers before 325 AD in the first 250 years after the the New Testament was written. We have 32,000 plus quotations of Scripture. That's 30,000 documents that we have that either are a Greek version or a different language version, plus another 32,000 quotations. And and, and that, that number is very large and I think it, by, we can illustrate the, the, the certainty of this by comparison. Okay, I'm going to list three of the most uh, celebrated ancient documents. Homer's Iliad, Caesar's Gallic Wars, and Tacitus, a Roman historian, his version called the Annals. Compared to all three of these, we have so much material. Because Homer's Iliad has about 650 copies in Greek. That's 10% of what we have of the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Caesar's Gallic Wars, we have 10 copies. 10. Tacitus' Annals, there are 20. What's my point? If secular scholars are very certain with 10 or 20 copies that they know what the text says, then come on. We've got thousands we can know what the Bible says. Well, then someone would say, another objection, well, the copies we have are very late. You know, if, if, there's, a number of, if there's a number of years that elapse between the, what we see in the text and the versions that we have, then you can't trust it because it, it could get corrupted as the years go by. That's true. That's a valid argument. But what we have stands the test of time. The earliest fragment of a New Testament writing is from the middle 100s, within 75 years of the New Testament's writing. The earliest complete manuscript of the New Testament is about 300 years after the events recorded in our Bible. And 300 years, wow, that's like a long time to have the first completed document. Actually, it's not. Because the first completed Gallic Wars we have from Caesar are from 900 years after he died. Tacitus, 800 years after he died. What we have from the New Testament is very close to the time that it was written. And again, if these documents are trusted by secular scholars, then why shouldn't we trust ours that have better attestation? 
Here's a third objection that, that really can unsettle us. Another claim you might hear is this. There are hundreds of thousands of mistakes in the manuscripts. There are, there are differences between them. Has anyone heard that before? Okay, many of you. All right, that's true to an extent, but it's not the whole truth. Scholars estimate that there are around 400,000 variants in the Greek text. 400,000. That, that's a lot of numbers. Does that mean uh, we got to just pitch the whole Bible, right? Wrong. That number is misleading. Our faith is not on shaky ground. Here's why. Let's think about it for a moment. Any difference between the manuscripts is counted as a variant. That's the term, variant. Any difference. And that includes very basic mistakes like spelling. A misspelled word is counted as a variant. In fact, 70% of that, those variants are spelling mistakes. 70%. Other variants include word order changes like switching Jesus Christ to Christ Jesus. And you say, well, I, I, that's really unsettling. Well, let's, let's do it this way. How were these documents being recorded? They were being recorded by individuals without the aid of computers or modern lighting or any sort of modern technology that helps us to reproduce documents. So they're writing these things by hand, sometimes in very dark or dank conditions, and they're recording these things. To prove this, just go home this afternoon and write the book of Romans by hand and see how many mistakes you make. And if you don't make a mistake, I want to know how long it took you to do that. Because it's so easy if you're glancing back and forth to write the same word twice, to misalign, to switch the word order. All those are very natural and easily explainable when we study our documents. Only 1% of these variants are considered meaningful and viable. And yet that, that number is still misleading because so much of that is a single word that's different or a different letter. I'll give you an example. 1 John 1, 4 in the New King James says, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Modern translations like the NASB or ESV say, these things we write to you that our joy may be full. So what's the variant dealing with? It's a single letter in Greek and in English, actually. It's a single letter difference. Does it change the doctrine of the Bible? Should we throw out our scriptures because we're not sure if, if John was saying that your joy is full or our joy is full? No. No major teaching of the Bible is affected. No major stance, no major event is compromised by this. There is nothing we base our faith on that is compromised or questionable because of variance in the text. The Xerox machine wasn't invented until 1938. And yet, we have thousands of documents very close from the time that they were actually written with a very high degree of accuracy that blows all the secular comparisons away by comparison. Can we be confident? Can we make the, found, the Bible the foundation of our lives? I think so. But there's a third reason why we can make the Bible the foundation of our lives, and that's because of the power of the Bible. It transforms lives. And I'm guessing that most of us are here today because of this point. 
because the Bible and its message about Jesus, the Son of God, has changed us and transformed us from the people who we used to be to the people we are becoming. Paul was radically transformed by God's grace from persecutor to preacher. And in verses 22 and th- through 24 of Galatians 1, this is what he talks about. I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ, but they were hearing only He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. These churches in Judea, though they didn't know him face to face, they didn't know him personally, they heard the report about him. They heard the transformation, and they glorified God. The Bible is the word of God, and it is powerful. Hebrews Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible transforms people like Paul, taking dead sinners and imparting to them the saving message of Jesus and giving them life. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God. And even after salvation, the Bible continues to transform us into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 teaches us that our ongoing sanctification, our ongoing development and growth and holiness comes when we look into the mirror of the word of God and the spirit then changes us into the image of Christ. The fact of the matter is, the Bible has been transforming people for thousands of years. And and sometimes we don't want to talk about the Bible's transforming power as a defense of the faith because, well, other things change people's lives. Well, yeah, a different diet may change your physique. Maybe a, a different mentality can change the way you think. But there is nothing that can change the heart of human beings other than the word of God. And this change has happened through countless people across cultures, different times. It saves, as we talked about last week, good sinners and bad sinners. Those that are violently opposed to Christ and those who did everything right in their life, it transformed every single one of them. And this is not the only defense for our faith. It's not the only evidence we have that supports the the, the reliability of the Bible. But we can't ignore the personal experience of millions of people that have been transformed by the Bible's teaching. The Bible changes the hearts of people, and that's what it can do for you. So why should I make the Bible the foundation of my life? We've seen three reasons. Because it's from God, because it's not been altered by man, and because it transforms lives, which brings us to a decision point. The evidence shows us that the Bible is true. So it is a reliable and trustworthy foundation to build my life on. And so I, I mentioned three groups of people earlier. Skeptors, seekers, and those that are settled. Let me talk with, to each one in our, in our time remaining. First, to those who are skeptics or doubters. To those who aren't sure if the Bible is reliable enough. To those who have objections that seemingly are not answered, the Bible can support the weight of your questions. You can go and search and find answers. 
And this today gives us just a small introduction to the defense of our faith. And these three points not only convince us to build our lives on the scripture, they they defend the truthfulness of the scriptures. And there are many resources to help you settle your doubts. There are many things from from simple introductions to, to why we can trust the Bible to very detailed textbooks in like size eight font that show us answers and give us answers to all the different difficulties that arise in our faith. And if, if you're needing some more time to study and to learn, I'd be happy to talk with you and point you in the right direction. Second, to those who are searching, to those who are seeking a foundation to build your life on, to those who are, who are looking for meaning, you will not find meaning explained outside of these pages. The scriptures show us exactly what life is all about. It tells us the purpose of life, the meaning of life. It tells us our origin and our destiny. It tells us morality. It gives us our purpose. It tells us everything we need to know for life and godliness. And it's not just making stuff up. The Bible is a historical faith. And that's important because these things that are written in it are not fictitious. They're not made up. They're not to be placed on the shelf next to Agatha Christie. This is real, historically verifiable events, these things. And that means they can be trusted. Now, there is faith involved. You will not be able to prove with 100% certainty to give yourself a level of assurance. Because our assurance is not in our own hearts. Our assurance is in the word of God. Our faith means that we trust it, that we rest in it, that we take God at his word. And if, if you've never committed to Christ by faith, if you've never built your life on the foundation of Scripture and, and, and confessed your sin and, and, and come to faith in Christ, that's what you need to do today. That the Bible is the Word. It is the way, the truth, and the life because it reveals to us Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. I encourage you, I invite you to confess and forsake your sin, to believe in Jesus as your Savior, and to receive the gift of eternal life. Finally, to those who are settled to those who have built their lives on the scriptures, to those who say the Bible is my foundation, this hopefully reinforces the teaching and the beliefs that you have. And it should strengthen our faith as we stand firm in its teaching. And I want to appeal to us because I would put myself in this category of settled but still growing as a Christian. It is easy to claim the Bible as our foundation without actually living like it in practical ways. The extent to which you obey the scriptures reveals your true attitude toward it. I would invite you, encourage you, plead with you to build your life on every part of the Bible. Seek its wisdom for your decisions. Study it to learn the will of God. Meditate on it to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it shape your values. Let it set your family's priorities. Don't just use it as an ornament to your suit or your dress on Sunday mornings. Build your family Build your life on the word of God. Follow its teachings. Believe its promises. Ultimately, this question of why should I make the Bible the foundation of my life is answered by the Lord Jesus in a very famous parable in Matthew 7 and in Luke chapter 6. Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 with a story. He said there were two men. One who built his house on a rock, the other who built his house on sand. And we have a children's song that sings this, but don't miss the the power of this message. 
that when a storm came and storms are inevitable in life, they will come. The foundation you build your life on is what determines your success or failure. Because the man who built his house on sand had a house that collapsed. The man who built his house on a rock had an unshakable foundation. And Jesus concluded that great sermon and that story with these words. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Those who build their lives on the Bible have an unshakable foundation. Let's pray together. Father, what a, what, a, what a great kindness you've done on our behalf by giving to us the word of God. You, Father, have, have breathed it out. You have revealed your son in it and the spirit has superintended the whole process to ensure that it is true and accurate and reliable. So we give you glory, Father. You are a wonderful Savior. You are a great God and a majestic King. In our feeble lives, we desire to build on the bedrock truth of the word, to have a foundation that cannot be shaken even in the worst of storms. So give us grace to build our foundation. For those who are doubting and skeptical, we pray that they would have their answers resolved as they search out answers to the scriptures. For those who are seeking, who are who are considering the claims of Christ, who need salvation, we pray that they would receive Christ as Savior. And for those who have claimed the scriptures, who are saints and who are settled, we pray that we would be stronger in our faith, that we would hold firm to it and build every part of our lives under its authority and on its sufficiency. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.